Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we're going to talk about the psychological impact of medical gaslighting. Now, we've already done a four-part series on the sex and gender bias in medicine, and we talked about medical gaslighting as well as biases and what we can do about them in those episodes. But today, we want to talk more in depth about the toll that medical gaslighting can take on us and how it can affect us psychologically. We do want to give a content warning that in today's episode, we are going to talk about trauma as well as emotional abuse. Also, please remember that we are not mental health professionals, and we recommend that you reach out to a mental health professional or a loved one for support when dealing with issues like trauma. Because of all the medical gaslighting, so many of us normalize our symptoms. And I know that in my own case, by the time I was 23 years old, I absolutely believed that there was nothing wrong with me medically but instead that there was something inherently wrong with me as a person. I was 100% convinced that it was my fault that I was sick due to my own inadequacies. But now I know that it's our medical system that is broken and not me that is broken or you that is broken. The medical system is a system where typically specialists work in silos. They don't see the body as a whole. They declare people assigned female at birth as neurotic with psychosomatic symptoms after just a few tests come back normal. It's a system that has its doctors overworked and stressed, a system that gives 10 minutes per appointment time, which is not enough time to go over our medical history, let alone talk about solutions. It's a system that depends heavily on medication and symptom management instead of addressing the root cause. And I will say that Of course, medication has an important role in our health and in our disease management. I take medication every single day, and there's no shame in taking medicine. But what I'm referring to here is the doctors who say things like, okay, well, if my pelvic pain doesn't respond to birth control, then I can't be helped, which is not true, instead of the medical professional saying, this is the extent of how I can manage your disease, but let me refer you to an expert. Let me refer you to an excision surgeon. Let me refer you to a pelvic floor therapist or a nutritionist, or let's explore other options. So that is what I'm referring to when I say that the medical system that we're in depends really heavily on medication instead of trying to help you tackle various aspects of your life that could either have the same effect as medication have a better effect than medication or work in conjunction with medication. It makes me think of a time when I was 18 years old and I had chronic diarrhea and I went to the gastroenterologist and all they wanted me to do was to take medication to stop diarrhea instead of talking to me about 
what my diet was or why you were even having diarrhea in the first place. You know, so there's many times when you go to the doctor and because of the short appointment time and because that is the system that they're working in, it's here, have this medication. And if it doesn't work, they throw their hands up and shrug and they're like, "Mm, well, I don't know how to help you. You can't be helped. And that's not true that we can't be helped. Maybe we just can't be helped further by that doctor. So, I mean, you all know my story by now. And, you know, it took an unacceptable 16 years to get a diagnosis as a white, cis, heterosexual woman with health insurance and access to 40-plus good doctors, supposedly good doctors, I roll there, in major cities. And yet people of color, gender-diverse folks, people without insurance, and people living in rural areas often face even further bias further discrimination, and further delays in their diagnosis and treatment of illness. So everything that I've just talked about, this all contributes to the traumatic experiences that so many of us have had with the medical system. And I would say that the worst part for me about the 16 years to diagnosis, and then even the years after I was diagnosed trying to get treatment, was not the physical suffering, was not the devastation of my relationships and my career, not the infertility or the co-conditions or the damage to my body from the untreated endometriosis ravaging inside of it, or even the medical death. For me, the worst part of my experience with trying to get a diagnosis, my experience with the medical system, is the fact that I am still trying to repair the psychological damage that years of gaslighting did to me. It's resulted in a lack of trust in myself very, very critical self-talk, and feelings of inadequacy and brokenness. My story is not unique. I am just one of millions of others who have been failed by our disgraceful medical system. And of course, right now I'm talking about the U.S. medical system, but I think that so many medical systems worldwide put their patients in a very similar or even worse position. And I think many of you listening have also been equally failed by the medical system. So today we want to have a conversation about medical gaslighting, about the trauma, and about the psychological impact it can have on us. Before we start, we just want to remind you to check out our website, in16years.com. There we have resources for endometriosis as well as the show notes for each episode. If you'd like to support us, you can rate our podcast in your podcast app, reach out to us via email or Instagram, or buy us a coffee via the support page on our website. So let's start by defining gaslighting. What is gaslighting? Something that all of us have experienced almost every time we go to the doctor? Correct, but (laughs) let's define what it is. From what we've gathered, the term gaslighting actually came about from a movie that starred Ingrid Bergman. And in the movie, in the film, her husband keeps turning down the gaslight lamps. So he turns them down. She asks if it's getting dimmer or darker in the room. And he replies with no. He does other things to her as well, emotionally manipulating her perspective or what she's experiencing. And that's what gaslighting is. It's dismissal of your feelings or your perspective or what you're actually experiencing, so your lived experience, making you feel like it's not true, making you feel like what you're experiencing is wrong or not actually happening to you. So that's what gaslighting is. Making you question yourself. Yes. 
So many people who gaslight us are not trying to emotionally manipulate us. I would say certainly there are people we may have experienced who are. But for the most part, especially when talking about our medical community, they are not trying to emotionally manipulate us or make us doubt ourselves. Doctors, families, and friends don't typically do that on purpose. However, the fact that they so strongly believe what they are saying is true versus what we are saying isn't true means that they end up gaslighting us because they're so convinced of their truth and they want to invalidate our truth, which means it leads to us questioning our own reality, thinking that we're wrong, thinking we are making it up, thinking that it can't possibly be true, that our experiences aren't real. And that's why we do experience being gaslit. So we want to spend a little bit of time having real-world application for what this sounds like. I think sometimes it can be hard to know what gaslighting sounds like in a medical sense if we're not sure if we've experienced it or not. So we want to talk about some quotes from both mine and Amy's medical experiences. And these are pretty direct quotes that we have heard from doctors. And these are all experiences that are gaslighting. And you may have heard similar phrases to these, or you may have some of your own. But hopefully this will help you to recognize being gaslit if you're unsure. I bet the majority of the listeners have had at least one. No, I would say. Probably more. (laughs) At least three to five of these sentences or sentiments. Like Brittany said, these are like direct quotes that the doctor gave me. So you may not have had the exact same situation, but something very, very similar. But let's see if you feel your bingo card. (laughs) (laughs) Who's going to get bingo by the end of this? Probably everyone. So we want to start with minimization of our symptoms. Now, I remember multiple times I went to the doctor even though I was pooping and peeing myself as in urgency and frequency both on the front end and the back end. I was in chronic pain and I had debilitating menstrual pain. And yet, I was told multiple times that I should be grateful. I should be grateful that I don't have a serious illness. Every time the test came back negative, the colonoscopy came back negative, the blood test came back negative. I should just smile and be like, oh, my God, thank God I don't have a serious illness. I mean, granted, I keep pooping in my underwear and I can't make it to the toilet in time. And granted, I go pee like 20 times an hour, completely and utterly incapacitating my ability to leave the house or sit an exam at college or go shopping or hold a job. But I should be so grateful that it's just not something serious. (laughs) I'm so grateful. Throw me a party. Yeah, well, you know, at least it's not cancer. Well, you know, at least it's not colitis. Well, you know, it could be worse. You could have Crohn's. Well, it could be worse. You could have some disease that nobody's ever heard of. Just be grateful that you don't have any of those things. Thank you, Dr. Brittany. I feel really great. You're welcome. (laughs) I hope that gaslight keeps you warm at night. So that's a very common gaslight experience is minimizing what you're experiencing and telling you, well, at least it's not this. It could be worse. I've had patients who are way worse, so you really shouldn't be that upset. Your symptoms can't possibly be that severe. All of those things are minimizing, gaslighting you and minimizing your symptoms. Oh, I remember once I, well, a doctor actually told me, first, I want to say that I feel like we also hear this a lot from our friends and family. Oh, at least it's not worse or at least it's not cancer which is very hurtful. And the second thing is that doctors really did say those things to me. After my colonoscopy came back negative and I was 
very upset and I was crying and I was asking the doctor, well, then what, what's wrong with me? I, I don't understand. Why am I having so much diarrhea every single day and I can't hold it? And he literally said, I don't know why you're crying. You should be grateful you don't have colitis or Crohn's disease. And I was like, I am grateful. Of course, I don't want to have colitis or Crohn's. By the way, my sister has colitis and then it turns out it was actually Crohn's. So that disease is very near and dear to my heart. Of course, I'm grateful. But yeah, me being grateful doesn't solve my problems, does it? Doesn't, oh, I'm so grateful. Ooh, and now the diarrhea stays in my anus when I need it to. Mm. Well, the point of me gaslighting you is to diminish how serious you think what's going on is. So if I gaslight you, that means I can take it less seriously because I'm telling you to take it less seriously. And that's why it's done. So then let's move on now to outright dismissal of our symptoms. I think for a lot of us, it's really hard to get help from the doctor when we're teenagers. I went to the ER because my dad thought I had a kidney stone. And guess what? I did. And guess what happened when I went into the ER? They made me sit even though I was vomiting and screaming in pain. And my dad carried me in and said, I'm pretty sure she has a kidney stone, which was my first kidney stone ever. So, of course, I didn't know what was going on. And they plopped me down in the waiting room chair and they said... Well, you know, young people tend to exaggerate. She's also way too young to be experiencing any of these symptoms. So have a seat and we'll come back in like an hour-ish when she's calmed down. They came back in four hours. I remember when I went to the gynecologist and I said that I was having pain with sex and I was asked, Well, do you tense this much with your boyfriend? Well, if you do no wonder why sex hurts, you just need to relax. Are you under a lot of stress? Ah, this is good. So I got my diarrhea under control around like 24 years old-ish. And I was still having diarrhea. But then when my period came, I would have the outrageous diarrhea where frequency, urgency, couldn't hold it. As soon as the blood began, the diarrhea would begin. And as soon as the blood ended, the diarrhea would end. I'm not kidding. It was like clockwork. And after three months of this, I was like, oh, wow. There's a definite correlation here. And then I got hospitalized for dehydration during my period with my diarrhea. So I went to the gynecologist and I said, wow, this is really weird, but I have this diarrhea that is really in sync with my period. And I don't understand. Plus, I'm having fevers. Plus, I get mouth sores on my period, swollen lymph nodes, things like that, sore throat. And the doctor said, well, sweetie, I don't know what you're talking about because diarrhea is not a symptom of having a period. Neither is a sore throat. And plus, we did a ton of tests and they're all negative. So there's no way you were ever having diarrhea 25 times a day. Again, I think you might be over-exaggerating a little bit. How about when you go to the ER because you can't hold out any longer on how terrible your pain is, even though you know that going to the ER, they're really not going to be able to help you any further than you can get helped in your own home with your heating pads in the privacy of your home with your chamomile tea and your vomit bucket and all of that, but you are in so much pain that you are actually scared that maybe something is really terribly wrong and that you need to go to the hospital because this level of pain is absolutely absurd. So you have your family member take you to the ER and you get in there and you're screaming and you're writhing and you're crying and you're desperate to get rid of this 10 out of 10 pain. And the doctor comes over and looks at you and says, well, I think you're being a little hysterical. Um, I hate to say this, but I don't believe that your pain is 10 out of 10 because I suspect that you're just trying to get pain medication. I think you're drug-seeking and you, you need to leave. 
Uh, Let's move on now to when your symptoms are normalized. I remember I went to the urologist because I could not hold my pee. Frequency, urgency. Mm, I feel like we're seeing a pattern here in my it's symptoms. It's a trend. <laughs> yeah, a lot of frequency, urgency. <laughs> I could not hold my pee in. And I was like 24 years old and just constantly, constantly peeing myself, peeing behind bushes, peeing behind cars, peeing in bags, in my car, running off the train because I had to go pee. Even during sex, I was peeing on my boyfriend by accident, obviously, not part of our like kinky sex play or something. <laughs> this was non-consensual and non-wanted pee. <laughs> this was peeing that nobody wanted. Okay? <laughs> and I went to my urologist and he said, well, you know, some women just have really weak bladders. It's just normal. It's part of being a woman. And most of the time, women are really sensitive. So this is just what you have to get used to dealing with. I think we all have heard about how normal our XYZ symptom is. Even though it's not. I think most of us can relate to this one when you go to the gynecologist and you tell them that you're in so much pain during your period that you're vomiting or passing out or you can't go to work or to school, you miss activities, you can't get out of bed for three days, and you let them know that because you're looking for help because clearly that's not normal because none of your friends are doing that and the doctor goes and the doctor says well you know sweetheart period pain is normal and the amount of pain you're experiencing you probably just have a low pain threshold so that happens for some women is you just can't handle the amount of pain but I promise you that this much pain during your period is completely normal and it's just something you have to get used to. You can take pain medication or you can take birth control to get rid of your period, but that's all I can offer you. Let me just vomit all over that doctor for a second. (laughs) (laughs) I wish we could just like exorcist style projectile vomit on people that gaslight us. (laughs) What if you could just, okay, what if every time the doctor was really gaslighting to your symptoms, you could take whatever symptom, like to that urologist who was like, some women just have a weak bladder, so get used to peeing on your boyfriend during sex. What if I just was like, oh, hold on, and I just pull my pants down and then got like the she pee, you know, like a funnel. <laughs> otherwise, peed I don't on know, him. And I don't, otherwise, I don't know how to pee all over him. And then I just like peed. I like whipped it out and I just peed all over him. And I was like, yeah, some women do have weak bladders. Yeah. Mine is extra strong. <laughs> just shoots out like a jet stream. <laughs> I also think it'd be You're great. like, look at the stream on that 10 feet away. <laughs> 10 out of 10. It'd also be great if we can just project symptoms onto the doctors to tell us they're not real. Oh, your period pain is normal. That level of pain is normal. Okay, well, here, try it. Tell me that's normal. <laughs> Tap them on the shoulder, and then they fall down. Yeah. They crap themselves from how much pain they you're suddenly like, yeah, got. yeah, that's right. That's, that's, that's what it looks like. You go over the little <laughs> intercom. You're like, um, clean up in office three. <laughs> in room, green room. <laughs> like, so are you going to help me or not? Is that normal or not? <laughs> Oh, doctor, it looks like you have a really low pain threshold. Some doctors wow. are just sensitive and That's have just really too bad for you. low pain threshold. I think you're being a little dramatic, doctor. Wow. You should just get up and keep working. That's a bit exaggerative because when I'm in pain like that, I can still go to work. So yeah, I, hello. Hello, do your job here. Doctors are a little bit uh, dramatic and they tend to over-exaggerate. So you should probably, you know, look at that. Work on that, doctor. <laughs> Let me see if one of your colleagues can write you a referral to a psychologist. 
This is just part of being a doctor. You should get used to it. (laughs) Okay, this one I love slash hate because once you, like so many of us, have gotten misdiagnosed with IBS because of our digestive symptoms with endo and our abdominal pain. So that they're suddenly like, okay, um, you definitely have IBS. You have nothing more. Now we've assigned the misdiagnosis. They don't realize it's misdiagnosis. They truly think that you have IBS and maybe you do in combination. You told me 20 symptoms and I heard diarrhea and I just picked that one thing and diagnosed you with IBS and didn't listen to the other ones. Ooh, I'm really honed in on the fact that you said diarrhea. I know Mm. that IBS doesn't give you painful sex or painful periods, but we're going to just ignore those and we're just going to go with diarrhea IBS. That's it. I am a A to B track type person. (laughs) But once they diagnose you with IBS, then it's like, oh, shrugs, it's IBS, right? As if IBS wasn't serious. Like IBS is a serious condition. Exactly. It's serious. Like if you have disruptive digestive symptoms, if you have diarrhea or constipation or alternating or abdominal pain, or you get super bloated every time you eat to the extent that you have to change your clothes, then that's serious. So it's not just like, oh, shrugs, it's IBS. So, you know, when you go to the doctor and you're still complaining about your 25 times a day diarrhea, but you've been misdiagnosed with IBS and the doctor goes, yeah, well, That's IBS for you. And that's it. That's the end of the conversation. I remember when I started having weird, like other weird symptoms because I'd always had diarrhea. But then I started getting like this weird constipation for days before my diarrhea because it happened to be that I had a bowel blockage. Happened to be that your bowels were tiny and there's nothing to get through them. Mm. But it was just IBS, I promise. I went to the gastroenterologist and he was like, IBS is a tricky beast. Sometimes it can just change the symptoms suddenly. I was like, no, 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 no. I've had the same symptoms for a decade. And now I'm telling you, I'm having new symptoms. And you're just going to re-blame IBS? Like, yeah, because I I don't actually know what it could be. So I'm just going to use the blanket IBS and just say anything that falls under gaster that I can't explain immediately must be IBS. How about IB... uh, Hold on. How How about I... Yes. <laughs> yeah. How about UBS, as in UB bolt, UB bolt, bull shirt, UB bolt, baloney shirt. All right, moving on to patient blaming. Ooh, I kind of like at the end. Maybe we can decide which one of all of these is our favorite kind of gaslighting to receive. Then we move on to the patient blaming. So by now, various doctors have established that we are just overly sensitive. We are stressed out. (laughs) Oh, we are so stressed out. And we have IBS. And that is the cause of every single one of our problems, even the ones that don't make sense, like the sore throat during our period is going back to IBS. Or it's probably anxiety. You have comorbidities of IBS and anxiety disorders. Very, very true. You should get treatment for those that that's not here. So Yes. And we've been written like 25 referrals to a psychologist, even though they've never done any mental health workup whatsoever. It's like, oh, wow, I have a lot of diarrhea. Ooh, seeing a psychologist could be really good for that. You're like, how did you connect A and B? Like, how, where? You collected A to 7. Like those like things how, are on like, different lines. How did that happen? Don't understand. I mean, sure, I I could have a mental health condition like anxiety, depression as a co-condition with something else going on. Not that anxiety is what's causing my lymph nodes to swell up only during my period, but sure, doctor. Hmm. What do we know? Hmm. Sure, doctor. <laughs> sure. 
Maybe I would take your referral to a psychologist a little more seriously if you had asked me even one question to assess my mental health, which you did not. In eight minutes, I told you I have swollen lymph nodes, a sore throat, and diarrhea, and somehow you figured out in your over there your as, infinite wisdom as a genius that it must be all in my head. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, you know what that means is that you refused my treatment. And since you've refused my treatment, that means you're a difficult patient. And if you're a difficult patient, that means that there's nothing I can do to help you because no matter what I do to help you, it's just not going to work for you because you're the problem. You refuse to listen to my advice. You refuse to take what I'm giving as treatment. So it's on you. If you want to get better, then you have to do what I say. How about when the doctor says, ooh, I think you should take Lupron. And then I said, I'm not really looking for a hormonal treatment for my symptoms right now. Is there anything else you can offer me? And the doctor said, well, you know, you should really be more open-minded to these kinds of medications. Vomits all over doctors <laughs> again. <laughs> if I we're using that. bodily he, fluids, this would be a bleeds all over doctors. He literally said you should be more open-minded. And patients that aren't open-minded typically don't go far in their treatment. I was like, um... Uh, uh, you're talking people to... with doctors like you typically don't go far in their treatment. That's the truth, sir. <laughs> and then the final one we want to talk about, although there is a list and list of various gaslighting techniques. Like I wonder in the doctors or in medical school is one of the chapters in their medical textbook, like is a last chapter gaslighting. It's yeah, just like... how to make your patients doubt themselves and make them feel badly and how to not take your patients seriously when treating them. That's the last chapter in their last year of medical school. <laughs> Everything you've learned thus far is so that you can properly make them feel like none of it's real. Go forth and uh, gaslight. <laughs> <laughs> Go forth and change the world by making patients doubt themselves. Mm -hmm. So then they go ahead and they give you their really crappy medical advice with no referrals to anything that could potentially be useful in the situation. Like you're like, oh, I have really bad diarrhea. Mm, no referral to a nutritionist. Oh, I have pelvic pain. Mm, no referral to a pelvic floor therapist. And we might not need to actually see those, but it'd be nice that the conversation could be opened, right? We could have an open dialogue about other types of specialists that could come in and, you know, be part of our team approach to whatever symptoms or disease that we have. But all we get is a referral if we get one, to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, once again, without any kind of mental health workup whatsoever. Some of us do see a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and it is very helpful in conjunction with a full-body approach to our treatment. But we're talking, Brittany and I here, talking about when the doctor just blatantly dismisses you and assigns your symptoms to anxiety or depression or stress or being hysterical or being on your head. Not when they actually do a mental health assessment, a qualified, real assessment where they say, oh, you know, it actually, I actually think that you may have anxiety and it could be beneficial to see a qualified expert in this. We're talking about the blatant dismissal of, oh, I have this physical symptom. Oh, you're assigned female at birth. It has to be your hysteria. The lovely medical advice that we get, if we get any at all, can be things like, oh, you have pain during sex? Well, you should probably just try to have a glass of wine before. Loosen you up and, 
you know, make you less nervous and less anal and less hysterical. That <laughs> less would probably frigid. Help. Yeah, <laughs> frigid. That would probably help you with the pain. Or, you know, I think you really just need to try harder to not poo yourself. Like, it's really not that hard. You just need to try harder to hold your stool in. Maybe wear an adult diaper for your urine if you're not able to hold that in and you're still incontinent. But have you ever tried, you know, like clenching, keeping it in instead of pooing yourself everywhere? <laughs> have you ever tried that? Oh, my God. I've never tried that. Wow. <laughs> oh, so I get it. The problem is that when I get the urge to you're go just to the pushing. bathroom, yeah. I relax the sphincter when I mm-hmm. should be clenching. Oh, the only thing I can give you God, is this titanium I... medical grade butt plug. Here you go. God, Try that. I really thought that I learned that when I was about one and a half years no, old. I guess My mommy not. potty trained me. But now I realize that I've just forgotten that knowledge. I need to go yeah. back to it. Hold it. Mm. Just hold it. Or when you say like, oh, I'm having a lot of urinary frequency. And they're like, just drink less water or make it to the toilet or wear an adult diaper. Or, you know, I have a really great trick since you have a vagina. Um, you should just try Kegels. Like those are really great. And also that boyfriend that you're having painful sex with, <laughs> he'd probably like that too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Slaps doctor in face. He's oh, <laughs> all over him with the jet stream. Also, who told you I had a boyfriend? Hetero assumption. <laughs> There's just everything wrong with that statement, okay? There's everything wrong with all of these statements. <laughs> all of these statements. So the best part about hearing these statements, and best is said with heavy, dripping sarcasm, is that when we are in with the doctor to hear these statements, is when we are in some of the lowest times of our lives. We're in pain. We're scared. We don't know what's going on with our bodies. We're vulnerable, so vulnerable. We're looking for direction and guidance by the people that our society tells us are supposed to be the ones that help us. But they don't help us. They perpetuate harm by using phrases like these against us. One doctor tells us, another doctor tells us, we hear it three times, four times, five times, ten times. It's like a hammer and we go to the doctor and we're desperate to be heard, desperate for help for these really overwhelming symptoms. And it's like they just have this hammer and they keep beating us down and beating us down and beating us down with their gaslighting and their really painful, casual remarks that are so cutting that really when you're in the worst moments, the most vulnerable, terrifying moments of your life. The doctor says so casually, why don't you just have a glass of wine before you have sex? And you're like, wow, that that may be what you need to do to have sex. Okay, lady. But do you really like your partner? (laughs) (laughs) But that is not advice. That is not medical advice. That is not why I'm here. Sure, I could read that in like Cosmopolitan magazine if I wanted to. But I came to you for medical advice to take me seriously. I've been told my whole life that you're a doctor, you're an authority figure, you know this information, you know how to fix me. I'm told to defer to you, I'm told to trust you, I'm told to believe you. you. Deeply trust you. I'm told that your word is law. I'm told I'm never supposed to Google anything about my symptoms. I'm just supposed to defer to the doctor. Supposed to just believe whatever you say. So how am I supposed to believe whatever you say when you tell me nothing? You give me no solutions, you give me no help. All you do is tell me that whatever I'm experiencing can't possibly be real. And if I'm young or vulnerable or believe the authority that I'm told I'm supposed to believe, then I doubt myself. I think that I am making it up. 
I can't possibly be actually experiencing this. It must be all in my head. I must be dramatic. I must be just over-exaggerating. There must be something wrong with me that's unfixable. I must be the problem. I am the difficult patient. All of that starts to seep into who we are as people, and we believe it because we're told over and over and over again that it's true. But it's not true. Well, because this is what the medical system, this is what we've been taught, at least I don't know who taught me this. Like, it's not like my parents taught me this or I don't know who taught me this. It's, it's just one of those societal norms yeah, we've like learned. Yeah, or like on TV or I don't know. But I just, I thought, okay, wow, I got sick. And then I go to the doctor and they do a test and they figure out what's wrong with me. And then I get treatment for it. And then I feel better. And during that entire process, I will be treated with kindness and compassion like a human being. That bedside manner will be great. I won't have to worry about it at all. Hold on. Let me give me. Hold on, Lee. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> Laugh out loud. Oh, uh, I think we said UBS right now. Okay. <laughs> because now when I think of the medical system and people are like, oh, you're just jaded. Like people without chronic illness who still believe that. When I whole... go to the doctor, they run a test and they tell me what it is. And I go home happy with my little shaker pill bottle. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> wow. Because you don't have a complex illness when you go to the doctor you just have a simple thing like or maybe you do and you just haven't found out that it's a complex illness yet (laughs) so good luck (laughs) now when i think of the medical system to be a hundred percent honest i have no trust in the medical system anymore like as soon as i go to the doctor yes i try i tell them what's wrong with me i you know of course i want them to help me to figure it out but i don't have great expectations no expectations like i'm ready to just be like leave the appointment like yeah, yeah, that's what much, I expected. Pretty much went how it went, and uh, now I'll just have to do it on my own. Talk to the insurance about trying to get a referral to get a second opinion to, you know, pay another doctor a copay. Like when I think of the medical system now, and of course this is not true for all the doctors, but I've just become so jaded that when I think of the medical system, I think of these clueless doctors who are limited by their tests, who can't think out of the box, who are beaten down and exhausted by the very system that they work in. That's what I think of. And that's sad. That's horrible. And that's a difficult situation to be in because, you know, with chronic illness, we have problem after problem. I was so lucky and so privileged to actually find a competent doctor who was an excision surgeon who was able to perform excision, and that was life-changing, and that was wonderful. But even post-excision, it's been three years And I still have to keep going to the doctor because I have mast cell activation syndrome. I have hormone imbalance. I have SIBO. I have pelvic floor dysfunction. I have interstitial cystitis. I have, we have oftentimes problem after problem because of the complex nature of our illness. And yes, it is so wonderful when we find a doctor, a competent doctor who can really help us. But I would say, in my experience, that's been like one doctor out of every 10. And, you know, I'm here that's with the, being generous. <laughs> I'm here with the mass activation syndrome, and I'm, I'm floundering. You know, these doctors that I see, even ones that are supposedly, quote unquote, experts, they're not helpful to me. And it's just really, really hard to navigate a system where a lot of the doctors don't know how to treat such complex patients like ourselves. And they have all these biases. And then on top of that, they dismiss and gaslight us. Another place that we experience gaslighting can unfortunately be with our friends and family. 
Our friends and family often don't understand what we're experiencing if they don't have the same chronic illness or illness in general. They're not equipped to understand, and oftentimes people are naturally wrapped up in their own lives and they don't know how to be compassionate to those around them. That's just natural for a human. And it can lead to us being gaslit by the people that are supposed to be our love and support system. And again, it's not meant to be malicious. It's not that they are manipulating us on purpose or trying to erase our lived experiences on purpose. It's that they don't understand them. So by not understanding them, humans naturally default to dismissal rather than trying to understand and accept. It's just an unfortunate reality. And so I'm sure many of us have heard some of these phrases. So I'll start with some of the phrases I heard from my own family when I was struggling with urinary and in bowel incontinence and frequency. I often heard, why can't you just hold it? Well, I don't know why I can't hold it. That's why I'm going to the doctor to try to figure it out. I don't know. I can't hold it because I'm a loser that wants to pee on themselves all the time. That's why I can't hold it. I can hold it. You're right. Why can't I just hold it? I can't. I just don't want to. Yeah, I love when I have to ask you to stop the car so I can pee in the bushes and you roll your eyes at me and you shame me and you make me feel like a pile of garbage for my medical condition that you think I shouldn't have and you don't understand. You just think my body is weak. Thank you. Thank you for the gaslighting. Thank you. It's really helpful. That's a really, really good way to support a 16-year-old person. That's really good. Yeah. Every time they have a problem, you just say, why can't you just hold it? If I could, I would. When <laughs> I was hard. in the army, I had to hold it for the entire day. We couldn't just stop and go pee whenever we want. Well, I'm not in the army. And I don't I? have your bladder, do I? Okay. <laughs> That's like the, when I was your age, I had to walk to school uphill both ways in snow. Like, okay, but that's not me. <laughs> it's the same thing. Okay, boomer. My personal favorite is the, you're sick again? You can't possibly be sick again. Like, uh, yeah, I'm actually sick every day. Chronic, did you, chronic is part of the term, chronic illness means chronic, like ongoing all the time. So yeah, I am sick again, but thank you for making me feel even more badly on top of actually feeling badly because I have a chronic illness. So um, thanks for that. I really like feeling guilty and like a burden on top of actually feeling like S-H-I-T. I love that for me. Thank you. Can you please walk a little faster? You're walking really slow. Beep, beep. Please move. Keep up with me. We're on a schedule. After we leave here, we have to go somewhere else. Walk faster. I don't see why you can't walk faster. You look totally normal. Why can't you walk faster? Why can't you just move? Keep up with me. Come on. What do you mean you want to get a wheelchair at the entrance? What, why would you need a wheelchair? Just walk faster. I don't understand why you're making a scene. Like, why are you always making a scene? If you're not pooing yourself or peeing yourself in public or screaming in pain, you're frantically running around trying to find some place to poo or pee yourself or scream in pain. You're always drawing attention. Why are you making everybody look at us? You're embarrassing me. Or then when you're sitting around a meal and you're like, oh, no, thank you. And they're like, no, but here, just just have a little bit, just just one bite. And you're like, oh, no, thank you. I'm I'm gluten free. Oh, isn't that a fad? Why are you gluten free? I can eat whatever I want. Why don't you just eat whatever you want? That's not really gonna make you sick. I think you're exaggerating on how sick that makes you. You should just try it. 
go ahead, just have one bite. Just have the meal. You're being a little obsessive and weird right now, right? Like You're just trying to be trendy and cool. It's not real. Gluten sensitivity is not real. And whatever happens when you eat these foods isn't real either. So just try. I know you want to. So thus far, we've talked about two different types of gaslighting, what we experience from the medical community, what we may experience from our family and friends. And those two things compounded together, the two types of the gaslighting from two sources, helps to perpetuate and reaffirm the feeling that we can't possibly be enough, that we're wrong, that we should doubt ourselves, that we shouldn't believe what we're feeling, that our lived experience isn't the truth, and that we are not good enough or we don't deserve to feel better. All of the gaslighting plus these messages make those feelings that much firmer in our hearts. So now we'll go a little bit more deep into the psychological toll that Yay. all of this phrasing takes on us. Oh, good. It's fun. So the reason why this is so important to talk about is because in addition to the physical symptoms that we're experiencing, we also have these emotional symptoms that we're experiencing. And those emotional symptoms, not really symptoms, but they're more like side effects of living in this society that we live in. The psychological <laughs> toll it takes mm -hmm. on our mental health. Exactly. So these mental and emotional consequences or byproducts of the medical community that we have to survive in and the world that we have to live in do take a toll on us and can add to our experience and add to the severity of our symptoms and our pain and our just quality of living overall. Well, I think that's where it really is, is that, you know, as we go through the, the list of ways that medical gaslighting and just chronic illness gaslighting in general can take that toll on the way that we think, it can affect our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, our relationship with the world around us. It can affect our quality of life and it can affect our happiness. It can affect our ability to have joy and to have gratitude. The effect that chronic illness gaslighting can have on us should not be downplayed. And that's not to say that to make us feel scared or to make us feel bad about ourselves. I think on the contrary, for me, when I really began to understand all of the trauma that I had inside of me and all of the messages from the doctors, loved ones, and even society that I had internalized when I began to realize that I was living my life from the viewpoint of someone else's beliefs, beliefs that were lies, you know, beliefs that I was inadequate or beliefs that I was hysterical or beliefs that this was just normal and that was my lot in life. When I was able to understand that, I was able to change it and to change the way that I was thinking and the way that I was living, which, of course, was a process that took time. And the other thing is I was able to better understand myself and I'm able to better look at my past. And we're going to give some examples of the psychological toll it can take. And I'll give a couple of examples from my past. But I was able to better look at my past and have compassion and forgiveness for myself and say, okay, this is why in the past I, I acted a certain way or instead of judging myself and saying, what was wrong with me? Why couldn't I just make a decision or why couldn't I just have confidence? It's like, wow, no, the medical system, the chronic illness gaslighting had beaten me down. I shouldn't be ashamed of my past. You know, I, I should have compassion for myself. And if anything, I should feel proud of all that I, of all that we have had to overcome. Because it really can and 
does take a psychological toll on us to be bombarded with these messages that our symptoms aren't real or that they are minimized or dismissed when they're our lived experience. And our lived experience is some days unbearable and unsurvivable. So on top of that, to be told it's not even real, it's like, um, it is so real. And by you not recognizing that it's real or telling me that it's not what I say it is, that's even more hurtful than my symptoms. Well, it's because the result of those experiences is what impacts us in other ways. First of all, it impacts us in our ability to seek treatment, but it also impacts our abilities just living our lives. When you are taught that whatever you think isn't true and you doubt yourself, then you doubt everything about yourself. You doubt if you're qualified. You doubt if you're a good person. You doubt if you're a good parent. You doubt if you're a good spouse. You doubt if you're a good friend. You doubt if you're a good anything. You doubt everything about yourself. You think, is this real or am I making it up? Am I neurotic? Am I mentally unstable? Is everybody else around me thinking that I am just a liar? All of these things seep into us, not just in terms of treatment. That's why they're so pervasive. The self-doubt that it causes us manifests in every aspect of our lives. We don't trust ourselves. And if we don't trust ourselves and believe ourselves, then how do we advocate for ourselves in the medical system? But also, how do we advocate for ourselves, period? If I don't believe that my truth is my truth and I disbelieve everything I say and I'm so insecure about my thoughts because I've been told that they're not real, then how am I supposed to decide anything? How am I supposed to stand up for myself? How am I supposed to survive in this world that requires us to make decisions and requires us to do things for ourselves? The most dangerous thing about not trusting ourselves is that we have to then put the trust in someone else. And that trust can be misplaced in someone who either outright does not have our best interests in mind or thinks that they do, but makes the decisions based on their own lived experience rather than our own. And that can lead us to having really harmful interactions and really harmful experiences and believing what we're told, even if we would have with a little bit more self-trust, known that they weren't right for us. And this can lead to really devastating and damaging long-term consequences. That was brilliantly said, Brittany. And I have three quick examples. The first example is when you don't trust yourself anymore. And I was 19. I'd already been told after two years, the gaslighting, the dismissal, the doubt, etc. The doctor told me, oh, you should take this hormonal shot to try to help with all the cysts that you're having. And I didn't want to take it. I was really nervous about taking it. I was really like in my heart, like I felt this in my pit of my stomach, like, no, this isn't right for me. I've taken all these other birth controls, you know, pills and patches and the ring. And they've all made me feel horrible. This is a shot. It's going to be in my system for three months. I'm not talking about Lupron here. I'm talking about Depo-Provera. I knew it wasn't right for me. And this was like 15 years ago, by the way, you know, and I said to the doctor, like, I really I don't know. I'm feeling really scared. I was 19 years old. And she was like, no, I really think you should do this. And because it's a shot, and progesterone only, there's no side effects. And in my heart, I was like, this this sounds weird. Like, this can't be right. But instead of trusting my gut, I was like, oh, let me trust the white coat, right? Like, let me trust the doctor. I said, okay, sure. Pull my pants down, jabbed in my butt cheek. And it was the worst three months of my life. Like, I do not do well on hormones. And I knew that. I had two years of knowing that of various hormones. And instead of trusting myself, I trusted the doctor because I just really wanted to feel better. 
and I just really wanted to trust someone. And then afterwards, I hated myself. I hated myself because I had known I didn't want to do that, and I did it anyway. Something else about when Brittany said you have trouble making decisions. When I was in my 20s, I had so much trouble making decisions. I was the worst decision maker. Like, you would put two shampoos. I'd be in the store like, which one? I don't know. I'd be Googling and reading the backs of them. And I would stand there for 20 minutes about the silly decision that really didn't matter because they're probably basically the same anyway. And I would remember, like, I would be in a dressing room and I would try on all these clothes and I'd be like, okay, these all look good. But are they good for me? Like, do I look cool in them? Or is this not trendy? Or I knew, okay, I look good in these, but is this the fashion? Is this what I want to be wearing? Like, and I would just go in the dressing room and I would stare and stare and stare at myself in these different outfits I tried on. And then I would come out and I'd be like, excuse me, what do you think of my outfit? And if someone said, oh, you look great, I would buy it. And if they're like, oh, it doesn't suit you, I wouldn't buy it because I literally had no, I had no trust in myself. I didn't even know what I liked or what I didn't like. And it got to the point where my confidence in myself was so low, and I think Brittany remembers this, that I was speaking in a whisper for like a year before excision surgery. Like I, when people talk to me, I would talk so quietly to respond to them. People would get really annoyed and be like, I can't hear you. Can you just speak up? But I just, I couldn't. Like I felt like I couldn't. Like my voice didn't matter. I didn't know why anyone would want to hear. Even though they had outright asked me a question, it was like, I just couldn't speak louder because I, I just, the, my confidence was so shattered. And when you have no confidence and all of this has caused you to look for others for validation and for affirmation, that often means that we inadvertently turn into what is known as a people pleaser. And a people pleaser is somebody that always wants to make the people around them happy. And that's different from saying, I just like to make sure people are happy. This is at the detriment of yourself. So always saying yes to everything that you're ever asked to do, even if it would be such a burden on you that it could break you, is people pleasing. Always bending over backwards for others who don't reciprocate that same energy into you is people pleasing. And the reason that people pleasing can be so detrimental is because the reason that we're doing it is either one, so people will not be angry with us, or two, so they might appreciate us and love us and adore us. I want to jump in and say, when Brittany said one, that they won't be angry so that we perceive that they won't be yes. angry. Because the truth is, a lot of times when we're people pleasing, the people are not going to get angry. You know, if they're like, oh, like I remember I was that really annoying partner who when you said to your partner, so what kind of food do you want to eat tonight? And they would go, what kind of food do you want, honey? That was me. That, that was like me to the core. And it was because if I felt if I said, oh, I want to eat Thai food, if they didn't want to eat Thai food, they would get mad at me. I would disappoint them. I would be letting them down. And so I always wanted to please everyone. I know that I've eaten things that I haven't wanted to eat. Like when my friends ordered a pizza and I was in college, I would eat the pizza because I just wanted to please other people, even though why would they care if I wouldn't eat the pizza? If I said no, yeah, they'd make fun of me and there'd be a little bit of peer pressure for the first five minutes, but they get over it. But I didn't want that to happen. So I would eat things that I couldn't eat because I was too afraid to say no. All of my life, I've been too afraid to say no and to stand up for myself. And having boundaries is, is scary at first. Saying no is scary. But the really cool thing is that as you do it, 
you realize the world doesn't implode, that your friends are still your friends, your family is still your family. Maybe share some people who were taking advantage of you as a people pleaser. Maybe those people disappear from your life, but they're not good in your life anyway, right? But the people who are truly your friends, I mean, if anything, maybe they respect you more because now when they're like, hey, what do you want to eat? You're like, oh, I want to eat Chinese. And they're like, finally, God, finally, (laughs) finally, you have an opinion. Finally. It took that long to get there. Well, one of the other really negative side effects of being a people pleaser is that because you're always looking to please other people and keep the magnifying glass, perceived magnifying glass off of you, you never ask for help. Because if you asked for help, then you'd be inconveniencing, in your mind, somebody else. And people with chronic illness need help and we need compassion from those around us. And if I bend over backwards to help you move because I care about you, And I'm too afraid to ask you for a ride home one time in case I might be a burden or in case I might inconvenience you, then that's an unfair dynamic that I've imposed on the relationship. It's in my head. Most people don't have a problem giving somebody a ride home. If they do, maybe they shouldn't be your friend. But that is something that I am making up. I'm constructing that. I'm constructing that if I ask somebody for help, then they're going to hate me. They're going to shame me. They're going to leave me. They're going to embarrass me. The people who do do that, good, they should go. But most of the time, that's never going to happen. Wait, I have a great example. Brittany and I work at the same workplace. And for two years, I didn't have a car. And so I would walk for like 40 minutes to work and home from work. So I leave like half an hour earlier than Brittany. And so I left work and I was in such bad shape and I was in so much pain. I was like, I have no idea how I'm going to get home. It will probably take me like an hour and a half to walk home at these snail's pace that I was walking at. I was on the sidewalk walking down this main street, like hunched over, my hands clasped to my belly, looking white as a sheet, like garbage. So Brittany leaves half an hour later. I swear I've only walked like a quarter of a mile. Like nowhere. (laughs) You know, like 500 (laughs) feet from the, I'm like practically at the edge of the parking lot by that point. You know, normally be home after half an hour. And so there's Brittany. She's driving home and she pulls up and she rolls on the window and she's like, um, are you okay? What the heck are you doing? Do you want me to give you a ride home? Of course, it's a five-minute ride from work. It's a 30-minute walk, but it's a five-minute ride. It's the quickest drive. (laughs) It is, and there's, like, no traffic. And I was like, no, no, I don't want to be a bother. And then Brittany and I, (laughs) and then the thing is, you are, I was being a bother, because it's like, Brittany is a really incredible person. Like, she's not just going to leave now that she's seen me in this terrible state, because then she's going to feel, like, terrible that she didn't help me, right? help another human being so i'm arguing with her like no no I, i'm totally and i'm in the fine. middle of the road <laughs> not even like in a parking space she's just like pulled with her hazard lights blinking she's like please amy just get, get in the car, in the car. Like, no no Brittany. i've asked you for a ride. and i had i've asked Brittany for a ride maybe once every month you know especially when my period was coming and i i couldn't get home you know so i didn't want to take advantage of Brittany. in my mind i was like rescuing Brittany from my if I ask her too many times then she's gonna get tired of me and she won't want to be my friend anymore but yes I was tired of you like the second day in I'm still here (laughs) (laughs) closer than ever I kid (laughs) but it was it was terrible you know and Brittany had to sit there arguing with me so there I'm arguing from my viewpoint that I'm a burden I shouldn't accept anyone's help and there's Brittany being really annoyed like pretty much ready to be like okay you don't want help fine then drive away like what is wrong with her why didn't she get in the car and she convinced, I didn't. Me, <laughs> she convinced me to get in the car. 
you know, and then the whole time I was apologizing. Thank you so much. For, like, and then near it's to like, tears. You're annoying. Just shut up and sit there. <laughs> Let me drive you home. Good Lord. Make a conversation with me. How was your work day? What plans do you have on the weekend? So I was just apologizing like a broken. I'm so sorry you didn't bring me home. I'm so sorry. There's all these things wrong. I'm so sorry I can't hold up. I'm if so I, sorry I can't walk faster. If I got a penny. I'm so sorry I can't be in the army because I have to go to the bathroom <laughs> so many times. If I got a penny for every time Amy said that she was sorry to me in the first like two years of our friendship i probably would be like paralleling bezos at this point okay (laughs) our lord overlord bezos i would probably be parallel with him with how often you said you were sorry to me well i think that just shows it's another consequence of the chronic illness gaslighting is that you can become a really amazing chronic apologizer i remember i apologized so often We were in the office once and someone started sneezing and they were like, does anyone have a Kleenex? Everyone just said, no, sorry. And I was like, no, my God, I'm so sorry. I don't have a Kleenex. I usually carry Kleenex and I wish I had brought my Kleenex. What is wrong with you? Why didn't I bring a Kleenex today? And this person who was already done sneezing. They were like, oh. They were like, um. Now they're embarrassed because you made it a whole big deal. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I came to the point where I was apologizing about so many things that didn't even necessitate an apology for me. Because we can internalize and make it our faults. And I think for many of us, that is one of the worst psychological consequences of all this gaslighting is that we think that it's our fault. It's our fault that we're sick. It's our fault that we have these symptoms. It's our fault that we're not better yet. It's our fault that we can't get better. It's our fault that we're, quote unquote, supposedly broken. But the thing is, it is not our fault. It is not our fault. And so there should be no self-blame here. And I know that's hard because we've been told so many times that it's normal or that nothing's wrong. It's been so minimized and normalized and dismissed that it feels like it's our fault. It feels like it's our fault, but it's not our fault. You know whose fault it is? First of all, it's just the fault of nobody. It's just our body, the universe, the way things are. Chronic illness exists in the world. Disease exists in the world. It's just part of our lot of being a human being and part of human suffering. And the fault for not getting good medical care or not getting a quick diagnosis, that's not our fault. It's not our fault. Even if we stopped advocating for ourselves, even if we made decisions that weren't in our best interest, decisions that we didn't follow our gut the way that I let them inject me with depth repair when I knew I didn't want it, but I was just too scared and meek to say no and to trust in myself. I also gave up advocating for myself after I'd been beaten down with the medical hammer for four to five years and told it was normal, it was normal, there's nothing wrong with you, be grateful, it's not cancer. I gave up and I didn't go to the doctor again for like six years. Surely that tacked on years to my diagnosis, but you know what? Maybe it didn't. Maybe I would have kept searching for six years, going to the doctor and being beaten down and beaten down and beaten down so much that who knows what other kind of psychological consequences, emotional and mental health consequences I would be suffering today. There's no guarantee that if I had kept going and kept going and kept going to the doctor, which is what I did for the first four years, that I would have even got diagnosed more quickly. There's no guarantee. I probably just had more trauma and more shame and more psychological consequences. Instead of speaking at a whisper, maybe I would have gone totally silent. <laughs> Instead of asking people, hey, do you like the way I look in the dressing room? 
maybe I wouldn't even have tried on clothes in the first place. Like we have no idea how things could have turned out. And so for so long, I blamed myself. I blamed myself for taking treatments I didn't want to take. I blamed myself for giving up. It's my fault. It took 16 years to get diagnosed. No, it isn't. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. It's not any of our faults. It's a terrible medical system that we're all trapped in that does not have our best interests in mind that is really, really hard to navigate, full of biases and incompetent doctors and too much stress put on the doctors and overload and vested interests. And there's like a hundred things wrong with our medical system. But there's not anything wrong with us in the way that we advocate and the way that we've been looking for answers. We've done the best that we could in a really, really terrible situation. And that's why it's important to talk about this, because it's important for us to recognize that this is happening to us. As we've spoken about, one of the symptoms of being gaslit continuously is that you don't believe that it's happening. So you can be gaslit into believing that gaslighting is not real and that it's not happening to you. And society tells us that that's just how it is. And doctors tell us that's just how it is. And we as a community need to talk about this really pervasive problem that is 100% real because people need to know it's happening to them. Because if you know it's happening to you, you can stop it at the source. If you hear a phrase that is gaslighting from your doctor, you can say, excuse me, I don't need you to invalidate my lived experience. This is what I'm experiencing and I need you to take it seriously. Boom! Bam! And then like music <laughs> plays and confetti rains down from the sky and that doctor gets hit by lightning. Yeah! And then you pee on her and you leave. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but that's why it's important to know that this is real because we need to know how to combat it. We need to know how to notice it and when it rears its ugly head, smack it back down to its hole where it came from because this affects all of us. And because it affects all of us, it affects our community. And it affects us, like we said, not just when we're seeking treatment, but in our whole lives. And this breeds an entire group of people who, will, who cannot stand up for themselves, who cannot speak for themselves. That's one of the reasons why there's so much hurt and pain with people with chronic illness, in addition to the actual symptoms, is because of the emotional and mental toll that seeking treatment can take on us. So now that we've talked about gaslighting and the ways that it can affect us psychologically, we just wanted to quickly talk about what we can do about it. Dealing with gaslighting trying to regain our confidence in ourselves, our trust in ourselves. It can be a long process. And so I think it is really important for us to be gentle with ourselves, to be compassionate with ourselves, not to judge ourselves. I used to judge myself so much. And then especially as I began changing, you know, as I began gaining confidence and gaining self-trust, I feel like my judgments towards myself got even harsher because I then would look back with this new lens, a lens of having more self-confidence than I had, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. And I would look back at my past and I would just cringe and be like, why did I do those things? What was wrong with me? And I would be so ashamed. And that's why I think talking about the effects that all of this can have on our mental health, on our psychological health, is so important because it can help us understand where we were at that time or where we are now. 
And that can help us be compassionate with ourselves. And that can help us understand that we're going through a hard time. We've been dealing with really difficult stuff. We're not inherently broken or inherently flawed. But maybe we do have aspects of ourselves that we'd like to work on, like trying to work on our self-trust or trying to work on our confidence. And I think looking at it of a lens of how can I understand myself and what can I do to try to have a better relationship with myself, relationship with the world or quality of life instead of looking at it from the lens of why do I do this? Why am I so awful? Why am I so stupid? Why do I apologize all the time? That's not a helpful lens and that's just re-gaslighting ourselves and then further internalizing that we're broken, we're a burden, we're, the, we're a bother when we're not any of those things. So recently I reconnected with an old friend from 18 years ago from when I was in college and we were chatting on social media and, you know, we reconnected and she made this comment just very casually that, oh my gosh, that I was such a mess when I was in college. And, you know, when she made that comment, it's funny because the me of maybe five years ago, I would have been so embarrassed that she brought up me of the past. Like I would have been so embarrassed that she brought up the way that I was in college because I'm not that way anymore. But, you know, and again, there's nothing wrong with the way that I was. But in my mind, I was so ashamed of my people pleasing and my lack of boundaries. And I was crying all the time and I was dealing with a lot and I was handling it the best that I could. But me of five years ago, I would have wanted to crawl in a hole when she brought up what a quote unquote mess I was when I was in college. But it was interesting because I've been working so much with myself on self-compassion and forgiveness that when she made that comment, she was talking to the me of today who has taken a lot of time. I've taken a lot of time to understand my past and to forgive myself. And so I just wrote back to her comment and I said, you know, the Amy that you're talking about from college, she was very traumatized. She was unsupported. She was alone. She was terrified every second. She was in constant pain. And she was doing the best that she could. And I also think that maybe if you had been through some of the things that this past Amy had been through, then you also might have been a quote-unquote mess back then. And I just said that, and then I, and then I just let it go. And then I was like, I realized that I'm not really wanting to rekindle this friendship. So I hope everything is going well for you and enjoy your life, honey. Because you know what? I don't want to be friends. Peace out, Girl Scout. Yeah, I don't want to be friends with someone who's going to remind me that 15 years ago when I was in college, I was a quote unquote mess. It's like. And who also finds it funny to mock you for the pain and trauma that you've clearly experienced. Right. So. Well, I mean, she didn't know that, but I, I was just so proud of how I handled it. Because when she said that, I didn't fall apart. I didn't cringe. I wasn't like, oh, you're right. I was so embarrassing. I'm so sorry. I was just like, that person of the past was so traumatized and she was doing her best. And that's all I have to say about that. I'm proud of that Amy of the past who apologized and was a people pleaser and had no boundaries. I am proud of her because she was struggling every single day and she was in pain and she had no support from her loved ones or from anyone around her. And she was making it in this really difficult world by herself, every single second in pain, unable to sleep incapacitating periods, screaming during her bowel movements. She was doing a stellar job. She was doing a fantastic job. 
And I applaud that girl of the past. I applaud her. Okay, honey? Peace out, Girl Scout. (laughs) Well, that's one of the things that I think we can do to help ourselves with this situation is to have that compassion for who we are or who we used to be. If we're currently in this phase of being people pleasers and not having self-confidence and not being able to make decisions and not being able to have a voice for ourselves, that's okay that we're there because we know that we're not alone there. And both of us have been there and many other people in the community around you have been there and are there. The point is, is that we don't have to be there forever. One of the first steps is having compassion for yourself and knowing and acknowledging that what you're dealing with is so hard and that what's going on with you mentally and emotionally is a result of having to deal with this extremely difficult disease that is dismissed by everybody around us. So we start there. We start by acknowledging that we should love ourselves and be proud of ourselves. And then we need to also acknowledge that we're not wrong. What we experience is the truth. What I experience in my body is what I experience. Nobody can tell you that your experience is not real. I mean, they can tell you, but you shouldn't believe them because nobody knows your body like you know your body. Nobody knows your sleepless nights and your painful bowel movements and your excruciating periods like you know them. So you need to trust that whatever you're experiencing is the truth. It's your truth and it is the truth. So we need to not doubt ourselves. We need to have compassion for ourselves. And we need to stand up for ourselves. When people tell us that that's not true, when people tell us that we're exaggerating or we're a burden or it's our faults, we need to know that it's not true. And I say that as if it's easy. It's not easy to just know that we're fine and yeah, everything's so fine. Easy. It's not easy. But it's that conviction of saying, I, I need to know this even if I don't feel it. I need to know that that's not the truth. And all of these things, because they are lies, it is a lie that our periods are normal. It's a lie that we're over-exaggerators. It's a lie. All of these gaslighting phrases that are used are false. They're, They're lies to us. But we believe those lies, and those lies are stuck in us, and we feel them in our hearts, and we feel that they're truth. But that's the difference between separating, is it what I feel or is it what somebody else is telling me I should feel? And Amy mentioned that earlier, is that she was living somebody else's reality, somebody else's truth. And it's really hard to distinguish between, is it all in my head like the doctor said, or is it not like what I thought I was feeling? And that step is really hard because those two become like Velcro. They're like latched to each other. Like, it's not easy to see which one is the truth and which one is the lie. And that's why we can't doubt ourselves. And it takes a lot of work to undo the seed of doubt that gets planted and then watered every time we go to the doctor and watered every time our family asks if we're sick again and watered every time somebody says, oh, that can't be real. It can't possibly be that bad. I have a period too and I'm fine. Every time we get those comments, that seed gets watered and that's why it grows into a massive, massive tree. But It's important for us to chip away at it because that tree will keep growing and growing and it will drown out any sunlight. What we need is the ability to advocate for ourselves. And the only way that we can do that is to know what the truth is. So we want you to know the truth is that you're not a burden. You're not broken. It's not all in your head. 
Your pain is not normal for a person who menstruates. It's not your fault that you have endometriosis or a chronic illness or you have pain. It's not normal to have these symptoms. It's not something you did. You don't deserve them. You do deserve to get better. You're not a difficult patient. You're not a terrible person. You're not inadequate. You are enough. You are lovable. You deserve love. You deserve to be better and to feel better. And anything contrary to that is the lie. And it takes a really long time to be able to unlink those lies from those truths. And it takes a really long time to believe the truth. Because it took a really long time to believe the lies, too. So give yourself the time and be patient with yourself. Don't judge yourself for saying, well, why can't I just believe it? Why can't I just have confidence? Because these things take time. They are pervasive and they get into our bodies like vines and you have to pull them out one by one. And it's really challenging. But when you think of those phrases or you hear a doctor say those phrases or a family member or a friend or somebody who's supposed to care about you, maybe this can help you recognize them. We've said many of them, but I'm sure there's more that you hear and that you've heard. But we have to recognize them and we have to go, oh, wait, that might be one of those. That might be one of those gaslighting phrases that I am supposed to be looking out for. And instead, tell yourself the truth. If you are having going to the doctor and you're telling them about your pain and they say, well, you know, pain with your period is normal. Oh, that's one of those gaslight phrases. What's the truth? My symptoms are not normal. And that's one of the ways that we can help to combat this for ourselves is to recognize the falsehood and follow it up with the truth. And over time, just like our confidence and ability to advocate for ourselves was stripped from us, we can build it back. We can regain it. And of course, we want to remind you that when dealing with trauma, it is always a good idea to speak with a mental health professional so that we can safely work through any traumas that we have and we can get the support that we need. Thank you so much for listening to our episode today. We're on the website in16years.com. We're on Instagram at in16yearsofendo. And we truly, truly mean that you can reach out to us. Many of the listeners have already reached out to us and we've struck up these beautiful friendships with people who listen to our podcast. So please, if you want to reach out to us, we really, truly mean it. You're not going to bother us. You're not going to be a burden. We want to hear from you and we want to strike up a friendship with you. Thank you so much for listening. You're amazing. What you go through every single day is incredible and you should be so proud of yourself. 